Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of one of e-games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. Uh, yeah, I'm Craig. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I also make role-playing games. And we are here with a guest today. Say hello to Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, I'm Ben Sandfelder. I'm another tabletop game designer, freelance writer, and creator of the original tabletop RPG, Lightning War. Uh, that's kind of my deal. Thanks again for having me. I, I think this is like maybe my third time on the show. Yeah, it's always we, so much fun. I'm glad that people keep coming back. I'm glad that we're showing them a good time. <laughs> I'm, I'm also glad that I remembered how to start this podcast because in between our little hiatus, I have also been recording a podcast that's completely different. Um, so the way that I opened that one is is very different. Um, so I'm not having you guys blast in the past or or, or using fan fiction speak uh, to, <laughs> to talk to you. Um, we have an awesome topic today, Craig, and I'm not having Ben tell me about himself because he already did tell me about himself. Uh, good job. Uh, we But you picked a great topic. Speaking of good job, Picked an Thank awesome you. topic. I am so excited. Oh man, me too. Craig, do you want to do you want to get the ball rolling on this one? This is one of those topics that I always have difficulty with because I am of two minds, um, and that's uh, you know as a GM using languages in the game and using them to their fullest potential. You know, the characters need to be able to communicate with each other and with the NPCs. And, you know, there there needs to be information passed because in most of the games that we're talking about here, there's there are challenges and puzzles and things to figure out. And you have to be able to communicate clearly to be able to accomplish all of that sort of thing. But, you know, in a in a world like ours or any fantasy world or wacky sci-fi world or whatever, there's probably different languages developed by different people, different cultures, different locations. And like the question ultimately becomes like, how much do you use that sort of stuff and and how deep do you get into it? And from a GMing side, it can make for another layer of complexity that you're already, you know, you're, that you have to handle on top of all the other complexity that is GMing. So let's yes. dive into how we can, uh, how we can use languages and talk about that. Yeah. The reason I love this topic is because I studied linguistics in in college so <laughs> and like and i'm a language awesome. teacher so i love it i love it so much ben what are your experiences uh jamming with the language options in your games so first one thing i have always personally disliked the uh dnd racial language kind of thing yeah the, there's a lot of reasons it's just kind of silly like hang on the elves in the forest speak the same language as like the snow elves how does that even make any kind of sense so one thing I started doing in my campaigns was basing languages on like, you know, the in-game nations instead of, you know, just fantasy races. And then that also changed how I approached like, you know, designing the cultures and everything. But one thing I've started doing in my last two campaigns is I have gotten rid of common as a language in the games. And it's done this really interesting thing where a lot of times there is a language barrier between party members and they have like the party has to almost play telephone or, you know, they go to a new place and they're like, shoot, none of us know the language. And it becomes like another kind of obstacle that they have to sort of find a solution for. And another thing I've gotten to mess with a little bit in the same kind of spirit of it is 
dead languages where nobody knows what the spoken form sounds like. So characters can know how to read it, but no one knows how to speak it. Tactile and sign languages in the systems, like weird D&D tangent thing. So in old school editions, uh, dark vision isn't precise enough to read with. So I was like, well, wouldn't it make sense for undercommon to be like a braille kind of language instead, where you can just run your hand across something Mm -hmm. and read it. And you don't need to be able to read in the dark. You you can just feel it. That works for me. And then, you know, on top of that, it's you're putting tactile and sign languages in your game. That, yeah. So I, I I've started experimenting with all of these little things. And all I have found is that it makes the settings feel richer and it creates just more fun kind of dilemmas for the players, in my opinion. I think you you hit onto something very important is language's connection to culture because they are they are not separate. Uh, a lot of our our culture is derived from our language and vice versa in in a lot of really intricate ways, a lot of very interesting ways. And I, I think that you were exactly right that the the idea like in D&D that all of the elves speak this one language, even if they are different types and they live in different places. Um, that comes from Tolkien, which I'm sure that he would not be very happy about because he was a linguist first. And that's not how language works, really. And it, it's silly because you would want the language to be tied to the culture. I mean, maybe, maybe in the history of your, of your world that you're creating for your players, there were like these two places broke off from each other and the language started developing differently. Sure. (laughs) But even like, if you even think about it in the last, like how, how long has the United States been a country? I don't remember since, you know, yeah, but I mean, like since colonial times, even then, like our languages have developed, like so differently American English versus UK English versus Australian English and that's with interconnectivity of our worlds now that's only that much time imagine how different it is when it's over the course of more several more hundreds of years I mean English itself was um speaking of dead languages that no one really knows exactly how they sound old English sounds not not really anything at all like English today and that's only a thousand years. And when you're talking about your like super high fantasy, cool, you know, long story history, you're talking about thousands and thousands of years. Those languages are changing. And those old documents, you're not going to be able to pick up a book and just read it. Like, what are you talking about? No, you're going to get some stuff wrong. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I think it'd be really fun. I, I love when you were talking about like the tactile languages in, in the dark, um, like you come across some of these old texts and you end up doing like a whole evil dead thing with it, accidentally getting these uh, spells wrong and you cause some sort of disaster. Like you could play around yeah. with that kind of change as a GM. The the thing that I find myself struggling with, with this sort of thing is, is how much it can, and I love to use this word, how much it can complexify the game. Um, because I find myself um, worrying that like if, if the, the difference in languages and the, and having different languages and having characters that can't speak to one another, if that starts to subsume some of the story, 
and you know like you're trying to keep the story moving trying to keep like the plot line have you know you've got your villains your your challenges or your disaster or whatever it is you're dealing with um and then you get totally sidetracked at in this moment because you have an npc that speaks a language that none of the characters do and you know there's the potential of that causing like a breakdown in the, the movement of the story and you know i think different games that have a lot of languages in them handle it in different ways like you know in dnd you've got you know you can have characters running around with scrolls of comprehend languages or whatever um, or tongues that allows them to just like okay we've got this resource it's limited we can use it when we need it um that'll kind of help us to overcome that thing but if you don't have that sort of thing you know you run you run the risk of like grinding the story to a halt while the while the characters have to try to figure out how they're going to talk to this person um and if there's like if you've set up the story that there's a there's a timing element there's a there's a ticking clock or something like that so that could be a real problem and it could if you do it right, it can add tension to the ticking clock and really up the ante and increase the stakes. Um, but it can also just, you know, spiral out and make the players feel like, oh, we're, we're screwed. We're never going to get where we need to get because we can't get over this one hurdle. So it is one of those things that as a GM, you need to kind of keep in mind if you're going to use quite a bit is have some outs, have some ways to deal with the thing. Um, and you can do that via like, you know, we talked about like magic items and if you if it's a high tech society, you could have like those, you know, like translator apps and things that they just have to try to get a hold of that thing or seeding NPCs into the game that can translate like you can have NPCs that serve that purpose. Like we we met this NPC three game sessions ago who we know, you know, has studied this ancient language. And now we're going to go talk to the lich that only speaks in the ancient language that's not recorded anywhere that somehow got passed down to just a handful of people. And so you've got, now you now you have to go convince that poor NPC, like we want you to go and talk to this super powerful <laughs> undead creature for us so that we can get the knowledge that we need to stop the army that's invading or whatever, right? Right. Um, and so as long as you, you've got the, you've got the, you know, the, the solution in your hip pocket. And if you've got a few of, those kind of ready to go um, or ones that you know things that you can introduce that will get you there and give the players a chance to solve the problem with their own resources and their own wherewithal um, but have something ready to go so that you know like if they're having trouble and this is the case you see with you know jamming any at any point like there's there's always the possibility that the players are going to get stymied um, and just have something ready that like okay I gave them the chance to try to, <laughs> to deal with this situation and they're they're having a hard time. So I'm going to give them this little something that'll help get things moving again. Yeah, Ancient Lich has to communicate his evil plan via charades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've been able to figure out, you know, when, when people contact people from other um, languages, we've been able to figure it out pretty well. I mean, at least right like humans i don't know how good elves are learning it or at learning yeah. language i have no clue but you know we can we can figure things out through through stuff like that or through translators or um i know ben you said you stopped including common as a language in your setting i think that's like pretty much like i think that's a good idea but there are still other common languages like if i if i meet somebody who doesn't speak english but they speak french we can communicate in French, like there are other shared languages. You could even go with like, oh, they speak something that kind of sounds like this other language you know. You can communicate kind of through that language, but some things are going to be more difficult. But Craig, you're exactly right. You don't want to hide necessary information 
behind a language barrier unless the language barrier is the point for that situation. That's that's totally true. Yeah, I mean, one way I kind of think of so first, like if you are doing the languages rooted in nationalities within you know, nations where or languages rooted in fantasy races thing, you know, D and D rules is written. Every fantasy race has its own language, like Avaleth have their own language, Knowles have their own language, and players generally like, okay, I'm just going to get like common Elvish Orcish, and that covers like most of the things we're going to run into. If you're doing languages based on nations, then chances are, depending on you know how big your campaign setting is, there are going to be fewer languages, and characters already get like a ton of language proficiencies, and so there's probably going to be, you know, if there are fewer languages in the setting, each one of those language proficiencies matters more. But on the flip side, with the um, if none of the players do have the language, you know, one of the games I ran, that was kind of the case. And I gave them one like translator earring, like magic translator earring that the party had to like pass around. They like, okay, who is something just like, you know, raise your hand if you need to speak. Okay, you get the translator earring, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but like the magic conch that also yeah, translates yeah. your language. <laughs> but like one way to kind of think about it is, you know, languages are like the social encounter equivalent of like a locked door in a dungeon. Yes. Like, treat it the same way as a lock. You wouldn't just put a locked door in fr- in a dungeon without either a key hidden somewhere or like knowing that the party has a rogue who can open the lock. Like if you're going to do a language thing, you know, give the party a way to figure out the language thing or know that they already have a way to deal with it. Just like, you know, monsters with weird immunities, door, locked doors and dungeons, all that kind of stuff. Have them do some sort of like yeah. check that like maybe there's linguistics as a skill in your game yeah. or maybe maybe they can just roll whatever attribute kind of falls under their languages if that's being used like a skill and then they can kind of piece things together again people are really good at deciphering language it's kind of what separates us from animals uh it's like the thing you know that that makes us different from a lot of animals um yeah i i you're i love that analogy don't it's the equivalent of a locked door that's that's a very good way to put it that's a very good way to put it thank you if you're planning to use languages a lot there's like, the, you know, the, the concern is always like, well, people make their choices, they have whatever spots, you know, whatever slots they can spend on languages, and then that's kind of it. Um, but you could all you could house rule things in too. this can make for interesting social interaction with languages is you can spend your language slot to learn a language and you know it upside down backwards and forwards, or you can learn the rudiments of two languages. And you can communicate basic concepts and maybe you can't speak more than two syllable words. Or you got to like keep it like caveman speak, like you know it's it's going to be like noun noun uh, you know noun verb adjective is about as much as you know, noun verb subject is about as much as you can do. You can't get into a lot of detail because you can't communicate it. You don't know the language well enough, so that can make for you know kind of an interesting puzzle situation that you have to kind of work out something that's a little more complex by only being able to speak about simple things. Yes, and then like you would you would be at a disadvantage in some social social situations, like when you're trying to lie to someone somebody in a language you're not very familiar with or you're trying to convince them like I can speak the basics of like Italian for example but I could not give a grand speech in Italian I could ask for some directions (laughs) I could ask for help I could have a small conversation about the weather but I would not be able to say like hey let me uh 
take on this adventure and you give me a lot of gold and here's the reasons why I'm really good at this. Like there are going to be some, some detriments in that, in that regard. I like that idea a lot. I, I, next time I play a game with languages, I might, I might make that a rule. So a kind of similar kind of thing. One of my favorite house rules for like dark, like, you know, dark age, like everyone is an illiterate peasant kind of fantasy, like a Warhammer fantasy or a dungeon crawl classics kind of thing. One of my favorite house rules is the spoken version of a language and the written version of a language count as two separate languages. Because then what you end up with is uh, not everyone knows how to read and write. And some people might know how to speak like three different languages, but can't read any of them. Um, and that kind of plays into the same kind of thing Craig was talking about. Yeah. And you could get to that with um, you, that sort of thing the sort of thing we we're talking about here with very insular slang and dialects um, and pidgin languages where I know how to speak the base language of a thing. But if I go to this space station where I'm thinking about the expanse and all the slang that comes oh, out of yeah. living in the belt, like, you know, I had to watch the show for a while and slowly figure out what the hell they were talking about because <laughs> they're they're mentioning all these things. And there's such a great language through in the story, um, in the world building of that. Or if you've ever read Clockwork Orange without the glossary in the back, you know, you get three chapters in before you know what the hell a devotchka is if you don't speak Russian. Uh, uh, so it because you have to pick it up all in context clues. And so you can have characters like if you break down slots and things like that, you can have characters that like now I, I can be, speak the this highly slang or dialect version or pidgin language. That's, uh, you know, and that in itself kind of also fleshes out the world. It's not just like, here's a language and here's a language, but there's like sub languages and certain subsets. And like this part of this kingdom has this thing going on that they, they ended up having this, uh, their, their, their languages was influenced by another culture, um, at some point. Um, and this makes me think too about, and, and Jess, I'm going to, I'm going to do a deep poll on language. Not, not really that deep, but you'll enjoy this because you know, French, um, is that prior to 1066 in England, um, everybody spoke what was called English at the time. The Normans, uh, in the Norman invasion happened. The French came in. The French monarch installed French nobles into all of the seats in England and put them in charge of everything. And French became the language of the aristocracy. And if you look at English now, there's a lot of French-influenced words in the language. We have two words for a lot of things because some of them come from the old English or Germanic version of the word, and some of them come from the, the French or Latin derivation of the word. Um, but the point being that if a commoner knew French in that period in, in England, it was assumed that you were part of the aristocracy or you knew something about the aristocracy or you were somehow linked to it. So it becomes like, like if your character knows the, the, uh, the aristocracy language, um, just as an example, or like some other highly specialized um, very insular language, there's going to be assumptions made about your character by other characters in the world. They're going to assume you know something about that culture and that world or that you grew up in it or whatever. And that can create for some really interesting situations too, because now, oh yeah, good job. You took that language, have fun. Now you get to know all this cool stuff, but you've also got this whole other layer of what you need to do with your character in order to support that because you're not actually a member of the aristocracy very similar very very thematically similar thing i think thieves can't is one of the most underused things in D. yes yeah like i uh one way i kind the way i kind of use it in my games is it's a like pictographic language that 
when I run it, it doesn't actually have a spoken version. It's just a pictographic thing. So like, you know, yeah, there might be what looks to anyone else like just graffiti on the side of a building. But if you know thieves can't, it's, oh, it says, you know, it, it's it's like a crossroads sign but for all the hideouts and stuff. And it's marking whose territory it is and all that <laughs> kind of, like, you know, just everyone else is like, it's just bad graffiti. And you're like, no, this is a map, like stuff like that too. That makes me think of um, transient slash hobo pictograms of yeah. of the United States yeah. Um, yeah. that developed that developed uh, you know in the earlier part of the 20th century and and carried through for many years, um, where uh, people who were traveling about didn't have homes would leave messages for each other about what could be expected in a particular town at or, or at a particular residence. Look it up if you're not familiar with it. It's really, um, it's really cool. If, you, yeah. if you've watched if you've watched Mad Men, you know what I'm talking about because it, it features in an episode. But it's uh, it's a really interesting um, and it that's not strictly language, but you know, pictogram kind of starts to get into that sort of thing. Um, and it's similar to what Ben was just talking about with his variation on Thieves Camp. One thing that we haven't like really talked about for this GMing section that I think could be interesting for a GM to play with a little bit is the idea of all the other things that are not the like the spoken or written language, such as body language and social norms when speaking, um, even like the distance that you stand next to somebody while you're speaking, all these other things that are kind of like tangential to language. So even if you do speak a language, you're, the characters could be making all sorts of faux pas that um, <laughs> are that they might not even know are faux pas. Um, you could play around with that. That's maybe a little bit more difficult to do. Again, Craig, you've been saying this entire time, you're adding these layers of complexity so only do it if it's something that you and your players are interested in. But there's all sorts of like language related matter for you to play with other than you speak Elvish, you speak Dwarvish, and, and we all speak common because that's what humans speak. Uh, there's so much out there with language. I've also before I think before we move on, we, we have also talked a lot about those fantasy languages, but I've. I've played in some games where language, like real life language was important, like uh, playing a game set during World War II, where the languages that you speak could be very important. And I like the way my GM handled uh, language in his games. He, if you had a language available, first of all, the, the game, you could spend, uh, it's like a kind of a different pool of points that you could spend on other characteristics and things like you could add a lot of different languages and he printed out little cards that had something like English or German or French or Italian or whatever language Latin ancient Greek um and when you were speaking in that language you'd pick up the card and hold it and you don't obviously you don't need to know the language like you can just hold up the card and then everyone knows that you are speaking that language or the NPC is speaking that language. We'd all have to pretend like, oh, we don't understand what's happening. <laughs> uh, and that, that made for a lot of really fun situations where like one of our um, our party members was translating for us, but was leaving out some important details, even though we all knew it was creating this really fun encounter like, mm, OK, sure. Yeah, we all knew that he was lying to us about exactly what was going on. Um, I, I think if you. You need to figure out how you're going to actually handle that in game. Are you going to speak gibberish, um, which can maybe sometimes be problematic when you're dealing with languages at your table? Or are you going to make things easier for yourself by giving yourself a tool? 
Yeah, I think, yeah, that gets into, you know, you, you can design all the cool languages and you can you know, use them in your game and everything, but like there is still the logistical, how are you actually running it at the table kind of question too. Yeah, I, I, I'll usually just kind of establish at the beginning of a conversation what language the character is speaking because like and then I'll just like proceed as normal because <laughs> that, that's been what's worked best for me but I've heard of systems where like you know I think it was a live action role-playing system where like yeah you just like at the beginning of you know you just like you just insert the language you're speaking in at the beginning of the sentence if you're speaking a different language and be like yeah uh goblin uh hey this is a bad idea we should get out of here and you know if you know goblin then you pretend you understood that <laughs> and if you don't you have to pretend you didn't mm-hmm. <laughs> players oh, are willing to play along it's fine and something that struck me too because we see it in tv and movies and it and it happens in real life um too in certain cultures in certain places with certain languages and and uh, people that have you know, multiple languages that they speak, maybe they speak Spanish and English, maybe they speak Italian and English, where conversations regularly bounce back and forth between languages, sometimes for no reason, and sometimes for very specific reasons. Um, so you could have that play out in the game too. Again, we're adding complexity to it, but it allows the characters that don't, for example, speak Italian, let's say you're playing a mob based game and the Italian characters are talking and they're going to speak in Italian some of the time, but they're going to speak in English some of the time and make it clear what parts of it the non-Italian speaking characters are picking up. And 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 that can be fun for the player to be like, well, what assumptions do I make by only hearing this part of the conversation? Because I'm not hearing the nuance that's coming out of whatever's being said in Italian. And so that's that's another thing that you can kind of incorporate. And and I think a lot of these little weird nuancey instances might be best in like, um, unless your players really, really get into it, then use it all the time. But it might be like, occasionally be like, okay, this, and let them know, like in this game, we're going to have this sort of thing happen. So be prepared. And and I'll, I'll let you know when I, when the characters are switching between languages and so forth. I, I think, too, like there are certain topics that if you speak multiple languages, there are certain topics that are easier for you to speak in in one language or the other. Like I learned all of my high flute talking points about poetry in French. So when I started teaching literature here, uh, I had to relearn a bunch of vocabulary. I had no idea how to talk about poetry in English. It was, <laughs> it was, and that's my native language. <laughs> there's, there's a, maybe you only know how to talk about crime in in elvish <laughs> <laughs> yeah my uh, my cousin lives in montreal and uh it's like yeah there's this whole uh you know just swearing uh people will just interchange like just interchangeably use french and english words just in the same breath like and that's just part of the culture okay? you know it's just it's it's how you do it there yeah that reminds that makes me think of firefly with uh yeah. With, yeah. um swearing <laughs> with the cursing in i'm not 100 sure which uh variant of chinese it was but the the i'm sure brown coats out there can tell me um but yeah <laughs> like that that was the you know the culturally in the future chinese culture had uh pervaded more of uh you know more globally and, and intergalactically and so everybody everybody swore in in chinese languages and that was you know they had that gave the writers the the, the ability to have swearing <laughs> and make it clear like that person saying something really naughty um and get past the censors but you know uh, for the purposes of um a world that globalizes 
and where everything becomes a little more mixed um, and shared, then that makes perfect sense. And that can happen like um, in any game that you're running too, where there's like, why wouldn't that happen in the big metropolitan fantasy city that has a little bit of everyone and everything in it? There might be some bleed over even between Dwarven and Elvish. Dwarvish. <laughs> and you think of like, you know, the way Star Wars does it too, with like all of the fun little like Star Wars vocabulary things, like, you know, the Mandalorian added the whole like, you know, ah, dank ferret thing. And now it's like shown up in three of the shows. But like, yeah, you know, I guess that kind of like slides right into the conlang that we wanted to talk about too. But like, yeah. just, what you know, vocabulary from your fantasy world, can you just sneak into the game in a way where like, you know, it almost becomes like an inside joke with your players, like, you know, like. Yeah, that, that's getting into our, like our design aspect. We want to move on into there. Yeah, we're talking about uh, designing with languages in mind. Um, let me let me grab the actual wording here. Designing with languages in mind and this, including common tongues, constructed languages etc again we i feel like this a lot of this comes from the fact that a lot uh role-playing games got started by a bunch of nerds who also liked lord of the rings and tolkien was a linguist if if it wasn't tolkien we would probably not be having this conversation maybe it wouldn't be as developed of a conversation at least i think it might be a little bit of a newer nuanced thing in role-playing games yeah What's a conlang? What's a constructed language? You tell us. This was this was the, Ben Ben chose the topic, but I believe this was Jess's. Yeah. Jess wrote it into the list. He did um, because, and I'm not surprised given um, your love of languages. Yeah, a, a, a conlang, a constructed language, is a made up language for a piece of media. You. Uh, the biggest, like probably the most well-known one is Klingon in Star Trek. <laughs> I have, I don't speak Klingon. I have no idea if the Craig only thing said I know anything. How to say. <laughs> what did that's, you say? That's, uh, it, it literally translates as what do you want? It is the Klingon greeting. They have no oh. word for hello. See now. Okay. That's great because in like the Klingon culture is like harsh, right? It's like, it's like very warlike am i am i right i i don't know star trek it's, very well it's direct yes like there That's... isn't a lot of that was one of the things i did have the klingon dictionary i learned i knew more at one point what i got out of it was that it was very it's a direct language there's not a lot of subtlety to it it's all very to the point they're going to have a conversation everybody's going to know exactly what you're talking about and you're all going to come out of it with information um and it's not there's not a lot of pleasantries and that sort of thing and see how that's like tied into the culture and you don't really know which one came first, the cult, the language or the culture. And it's because neither of them did. They all develop simultaneously. Um, a constructed language, it's uh, like there's Klingon, there's Elvish in in Lord of the Rings. There's Orcish in Lord of the Rings. I love that one. I love the way Orcish sounds in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's a, that also sounds like harsh and warlike. There's the Navi language in Avatar. There's High Valyrian in Game of Thrones. Um, all of these different languages to a different extent are more developed than the other. And uh, they are a way for the writer, for the artist to kind of show off a little world building and show a deep understanding, a deep knowledge of the cultures and the characters that 
they're writing about. It really worked for Tolkien because like I said, Tolkien was a linguist first. He understood how languages work. And unlike me, eight-year-old Jessica, as a child trying to make my own fake language by just completely substituting words in English to this other weird made up language I did. That's not how language works. Uh, there's so much that goes into it. Uh, vocabulary, grammar, morphology, culture, like other cultural things, like those uh, non-spoken language. Um, and it is a big, big task to start including some of this in your game, but you don't have to make a whole language. You don't have to do it. You do not. (laughs) I don't recommend it, actually. (laughs) It's a lot of work, but your players are not going to learn your fantasy language. No, no. But your players may learn the slang, you know, like they may Mm -hmm. learn like the important terms and and things that you, that you put together, place names, um, times of the year, festivals, um, how, uh, how monarchs are referred to, um, forms of address. Um, there's all sorts of things that you can kind of develop language wise that will, um, help to flavor things in, in the game world that you're designing. Yeah. And I believe fantasy name generator, the, the classic website, I'm sure everyone who does anything tabletop related is familiar with. Yeah, I just pulled it up. They have a form on their website. Uh, It's called the language generator, but it's really like a a highlights reel of these are the words that you actually need that are going to be relevant to the game. Like, you know, how do you say yes or no? How do you say good morning, good evening, familial relationships, um, a couple of adjectives like, you know, good, bad, clever, you know, you don't have to make the whole language. You just need to nail down like these specific words and you have the sort of slang stuff that Greg's talking about just ready to go. Or the things that are important in whatever culture you're dealing with. If you have a, if you in your game have a culture of people who really rely on the river, their directions, and I, I'm I'm using this based on what I know about certain uh, certain languages, your directions are going to be based on how far away are you from the river? Are you upriver? Are you downriver? All of those, are, are you on this side of the river or that side of the river? Like there, think about what's important for the people of your world uh, and develop the language starting around that first. So if, you're, if your people are very religious, if they worship these old creepy gods, um, maybe they're going to have a lot of like old creepy god related vocabulary and sprinkle that stuff into the language that's going that's going to be what makes it feel so much deeper um and really get your get the get the players to see the important thematic elements of the game too and you can you can build that off of ideas from that you know from from your own you know, your own language, the languages that you know. And I found myself thinking as Jess was talking about like, you know, how you relate to the river. And I was trying to think of like, okay, well, what is there in English that uh, ha- that fits that sort of thing? And I'm sure you probably have examples, but the one that sprung to mind immediately for me was clockwise and counterclockwise. Um, how do we describe something that turns one way, that that's, that rotates one way or rotates the other way? Because we have clocks that have hands that move in a circle in a certain direction as they move forward. So that's clockwise and counterclockwise. Well, maybe your world doesn't have clocks that function that way. The clocks look completely different. So how does your world describe rotating in one direction versus rotating in another direction? Maybe storms during the summer rotate in one direction and they rotate in a different direction during the winter. And so you describe something as turning s- summer storm. Um, versus turning winter storm 
that's just off the top of my head here. I'm sure I could come up with something better if I thought about it for a while. But or yeah, maybe, can... maybe time doesn't even exist in the same kind of way. Maybe there's no past tense in the language. Everyone's really focused on the present and the future. Like there's all sorts of fun stuff with time. I like that you brought <laughs> that one up. Yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to make a fantasy calendar for the old school game I'm running because timekeeping is so much more important than that. And I was like, hang on, what is the real reason that we have a seven-day calendar? And why is that so consistent across every culture on the planet? And it turns out it's based on which planets you can see in the sky on that night. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes an incredible amount of sense then. Uh, uh, did you know yeah. that during the French Revolution, there was a period of time where the entire calendar was changed? The French revolutionists, the French revolutionaries, didn't want to have a seven-day calendar anymore because they wanted to sever all ties to the church and the seven-day calendar was too religious for them. So they went with a (laughs) 10-day calendar, a 10-day week. And they also had like a, 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 they renamed all of the, all of the months and they renamed every single day was related to something related to nature or to farming or to work. No, that didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah and like, you know, the, the Forgotten Realms also runs on a 10-day calendar. And, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, it looks great on paper because you're like, okay, there are three 10 days in a month, and then there are still, like, 12 months in a year, and that's comfortably familiar, but timekeeping gets a lot easier. And, like, it looks really good on paper. And if you're a GM, you're probably not going to think twice about it. But then when you look into, like, why calendars are the way they are, you're like, oh, that's why we do it this way. And like another thing that came up with me with the 10 day work week was like, but how do you do the actual work week? Cause do you do like four days on two days off? Cause that math doesn't add up ultimately. <laughs> like it just, it becomes very hard to get any kind of like actual routine into a 10 day week. Like, uh, so like for game design in, the, in that way, like what are some elements you could incorporate that like I don't know, a lot of this is world building, which is an important part of game design, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are, is there anything mechanics-wise that you might be able to incorporate into your game using some of this uh, wonky language stuff? Uh, well, I hit on the languages and rudiments of the language thing. If you you could do that, you could utilize that in the game, and that's not really game mechanics. It's not dice rolling that sort of thing, but it's you know it's it's part of record keeping for the character and so forth. Um, and just mentioned having a linguistics skill or other abilities that allowed like you could have. Um, you might have in the game like a feat or special talent that's like intuitive, which is to say, like, if you spend enough time around somebody who speaks a language, you pick up enough to get by. Um, and that's that's the the the, the immersion version of of language um, learning, too, where I've I mean, I had a uh, I went to high school with um, a girl named Heather who took sp- first year Spanish, you know, had one 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 semester of Spanish and then was a foreign exchange student to Spain and came back like goddamn fluent, like, like, because where she was, where she, I mean, she knew enough to get by and just, it didn't take very long for her to just pick up everything else that like kind of learn, like, and maybe not fluent, fluent, but like certainly fluent by the standards of, uh, you know, high school in Northeastern Wisconsin. Um, she really like upped her game with Spanish because, and, and, 
that was something, I mean, she went into it knowing that she was, she was comfortable with languages and she wanted to learn and so forth. So that, that worked for her, but you could have something, you know, mechanically in the game that, you know, your, your character becomes better at absorbing things. And one of the things that you can become better at absorbing, at least at a rudimentary level is language. And that could be one of the things that, you know, you utilize to alleviate um, the, the, the worry that the language thing will become a barrier and problematic. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the locked door analogy thing. You know, as the GM, as the game designer, you know the parts of your game system that you want people to engage with. You know, you know the things that you want to be a big deal in your game. Uh, If you want language to be a really big deal in your game, it's probably not, you know, then an ability where like, oh yeah, you can just pick up languages really fast is basically like giving the players a skeleton key, Uh, which, you know, if it's not a huge critical part of your game, then it's not a big deal. If it is a big part of your game, then, you know, stuff like that, where it's like an instant win button becomes, you know, as a designer, something you want to consider a little bit more. So there's, there's no wrong answer there. It's just, you know, hey, which one fits? There are also games, I just brought it up on my screen because I couldn't remember exactly what it was called. Um, there's the game called Dialect, which is a game about language. It's it's dialect, a game about language and how it dies. If, if you're interested in building, um, I've, I've read the game, but I've never played it. If you're interested in, in seeing how a game that's all about language works uh, and maybe using some of those elements in your game, I would recommend checking that one out. I, f- I found it very interesting. It's it, it also helps kind of acclimate you to some of the like, like a little, little things you might not think about if you, if you haven't studied languages before. I, I love uh, going back to something that Craig said. I love the immersion aspect of, of learning a language. I think that that's really, that's really fun. If I were to make a game that had language as something very important, that's what I would do. Yeah. One of my, this is a digital game example. I don't know if there's a way to do this in tabletop RPGs, but one of my favorite things is uh you know, in Wind Waker, uh, the Zelda game, on your first playthrough, uh, a bunch of the characters are speaking in like old Hylian and it does like, you know, the different font for while they're speaking and it's the kind of gibberish thing. Um, but then, you know, on your new game plus, one of the perks of the new game plus is you get to play in the blue pajamas, but also you understand ancient Hylian. You know, <laughs> I would love, I would love to see more games do stuff like that. You know, I, but yeah, that's a digital game thing. <laughs> Final Fantasy X does that as well. As well. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think about how that might translate into a tabletop game. Yeah. Game. I mean, the easiest way to do it is just like puzzles and handouts, I think. Like, okay, you all know this language? Yeah, you know this language? You get this version of it. Oh, no, there was a VR thing I did too. It was a Jumanji thing. <laughs> um, I got to play as Jack Black, which was the best Uh, (laughs) there's a part where we're going through like an ancient ruin or something and everyone else sees these like hieroglyphics on the wall but if i looked at them subtitles would appear superimposed over it and i could actually read what it says so um, that's fun yeah so but like in the context of a tabletop thing handouts is the easiest way to do that yeah how can you facilitate something like that when you're writing a game like how can you facilitate for your gm to facilitate for their players, something like that. Because you want to make it easier for your GMs to, <laughs> to yeah, run your I game. I think it comes down more to like a module thing than a system thing. 
yeah, it definitely feels more like, a, okay, so you're making an adventure and you want to include this element more than a universal, like this is in the rule book you have to do handouts. Yeah, I, 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 it definitely is something that kind of goes beyond. It is something that has to kind of be handled individually by different tables um, or like picking, picking up, like you said, picking up those modules and developing something specific for that. Because you don't know there's going to be so much that people are going to be changing and evolving unless they're playing some some very specific specific world um that you set up in your game you don't know what they're going to run into here's 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 a goofy for you have a few ancient languages in the game that you're designing now this will work for like digital stuff like a physical book you know a physical book is a physical book it's like whatever's printed on the page is what's printed on the page but you could you know like literally have like things written in some ancient language and just made up pictograms or characters that you're using for that language unless you want to develop all of that which is a whole like you know like developing a written language is is, is a beast and then the pdf of the game could have layers that if your character knows this language you can turn that layer on and you can read those secrets mm -hmm. um which colors something about the world a different way for your character now there will be players that will cheat and turn on all the layers oh, yeah. and they'll read all that stuff. But if, you know, for the right group that like wants to play with that sort of like, Ooh, my character knows this thing. And here's this, just here's a neat technological way for us as game designers to, to give that to them. Another interesting way to do that, that I just thought of, uh, have notes written in the conlang all over the margin of the rule book and then have like an appendix for like the players who want to bother translating it <laughs> uh and then you know if they do translate it it's, it's all this like really cool or insightful like in setting commentary or deep lore or something like that like one of the i was a huge bionicle fan as a kid oh my um, gosh <laughs> oh yeah yeah. I like and, the games. Uh, I like the games. Oh yeah. No, and, and but like, you know, it had the whole uh, you know, like Matoran language thing. Yeah. And it was just like a letter swap thing. But uh every now and then they do these challenge things where you know it's translate the secret message and it gives you some kind of insight into what the next year's story was gonna be. Yeah. You know? And so like for the fans invested enough to like go in and do the translations and stuff. You know, you got to feel like, ooh, you know, I, I found out the secret about where the story's going next. And oh, I'm so excited about it. Doing something like that with your with your own rule book would be a pretty fun way to incorporate the language into the mechanics itself. I just was reminded of the part in a Christmas story where he decodes the <laughs> the message, don't forget to drink your Ovaltine. Like that's <laughs> a lousy <laughs> commercial. Um, <laughs> I, I thought of a way to do the, oh, you don't know the language the first time you're playing through, but you do the second time you're playing through, but it only works with Craig's games, The Secret of the Vibrant Isle, The Secret of the Vibrant Sea. Um, you can learn it. Okay, okay so those games, Craig, I'm going to explain your game to you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll, let's see if you're right. In, in, I'm going to very summar summarize it here. In in these games, it's a, it's a one-person game, um, and there are different, like, explorations you can do throughout and you get to go there depending on you know some of this rng that you're you're working with and and what you're deciding to do that day uh as you're surviving on on the on the island for example and trying to trying to learn some things um and there are different encounters you can have as you're going to these different um areas 
maybe on one of those encounters, Craig, maybe, <laughs> maybe you learn something uh, in one of those encounters. And then if you get to go back to a previous location where you saw that, that language, now you know how to translate it. Uh, and um, now you can, now you can go to, to part B listed underneath and you can read that section instead and learn exactly what it said. If you, if you end up being able to get back there. Um, that only that's that's a very it's not like necessarily like a choose your own adventure style but um that kind of style does lend itself to uh to a decoding of language Um, sure i was thinking the same kind of mechanic craig was talking about with the pdfs i I was like you can program that into a twine story (laughs) yeah well it's it's a it's it's the whole idea of like you see the mystery thing you can't do anything about it now later on you learn something that allows you to solve the mystery thing and then you have to get back to the mystery thing no man's sky did something like this you you know as you learn there are these markers you can find and each one gives you a like vocabulary word from one of the three languages in the game and then when you're talking to NPCs, it'll be gibberish except for the words your character has learned. <laughs> <clears throat> Outside of actually like constructing a full language from the ground up, which obviously we can't describe how to do that in, in a half an hour or even in a day. Ever, um, maybe. Maybe. Um, that's that's a course of study. Um, but you know, one of the things that people will will do a lot is when you're world building is naming NPCs, naming things in general, but in particular naming NPCs and something that I've gotten into, like when I did the capers games, it was easy to be just like, Oh, I'm just using, you know, human, human people names from the 1920s. But I did research into finding out what were the common names in different cultures in the 1920s and, and included that information in the back of the book. If you ever go to the back of the capers book, there's a, you know, like here's the most common English um, names and here's the most common, um, uh, I've got like multiple, you know, like Italian names and there's a handful of different immigrant um, or what people who were likely immigrants at the time in in New York City or whatever the 1920s. But when I got like with Code Warriors and with Good Strong Hands and its upcoming supplement, I'm, I'm inventing peoples from whole cloth and figuring out, well, what are their names? What are their names going to sound like? And I actually put together a key and I have it in front of me, like in Good Strong Hands there are the stonekin that are like they're rock people well what do their names sound like and i decided that stonekin everything about them is big and heavy and loud they're big they make noise when they walk if they get hurt the stone cracks and so their names are one and two syllables and hard consonants always mm-hmm. um they don't have a lot of floofy <laughs> like soft consonant names with m's and n's and f's and l's that's all k's and g's and um you know really hard yeah. consonants Rock. <laughs> um, and uh, like wildkin are like little animal people and they're gigantic ripoffs of Sir Didymus um, from Labyrinth. And so the description for them is um, they have short, slightly funny sounding or slightly noble sounding names. Um, so that's like just a few syllables. They don't get real long. They don't have like, you know, surnames and all this sort of thing, but it might be like Lord Flumpington. Well, they're a lord. So pay them due respect, but it's Flumpington. Um, and I did that for all of them. I, I decided like what they should all sound like. And there's a little bit of variation in there. If you if you look across the names, every so often there's a name that doesn't really kind of sound like the other ones um, because that's how languages really are. Not, you know, they're not always going to sound exactly the same. There's going to be some variation. But I, I tried to 
you know, make sylph names be multiple syllables and soft consonants. They should sound like the wind. You know, they should sound like something that can be carried very softly on the wind because they're air spirits and that sort of thing. So you can do that with um, with your you can do it culturally. You can have cultures where um, their language is like we said, Klingon, you know, like it's 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 a very direct language. It gets to the point. Um, short, terse words, names are going to be sim similar. You know, the short the names are going to be very evocative and, and powerful sounding words. Um, and you might have you know, another culture where they uh the the language is very flowing and free and they they really they they hit every lang every every sentence has a bunch of adjectives and they're really descriptive and they never just say short quick things and so names are probably the same way the names are going to be long and demonstrative of like who the person is or what their occupation was or their you know their their ancestors occupation or or of their station in society or um or whatever it might be that 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 you know, kind of growing to that and you can make, it can be made up stuff and it, or it can be, you know, like the, the classic go-to for dwarven names in, in D and D is like, have like their last name is Stonehammer. You know, it's like, there's <laughs> something that sounds very dwarfy. Um, and you can do that sort of thing, but you could also just do that in a made up, you know, made up words. Um, and, just, and you can tell people us. that, well, this is the dwarven word for stone and this is the word for hammer and they go together, but they go to back, they go together backwards uh, per English. They go together more like Spanish where the adjective comes after, um, you know, you, you can, you can invent all that sort of stuff oh, yeah. and that gives it just a little bit of texture. Yeah. I, I came up with a system with this that I, I used it in lightning war and then I wanted to like actually include it in the book of another thing I was working on, but like, it's a super simple, like three step. You just four step actually you, you pick your vowels and i mean like phonetic vowels not just like a e i o u like those sounds yeah pick like five of those pick the consonants you want and it's the same kind of thing like you know i'm jewish so i love including like the hebrew sound in there <laughs> um which is not a sound in the english language but it's in a lot of other languages too and then you decide on like a syllable count and a cadence. So like you can do like a one, two or like a one, two, three, or, you know, like just how many syllables and which one gets the emphasis. And then you just combine those sounds to the cadence you have. And you can very quickly generate a bunch of names that all sound internally consistent with each other without having to go and invent the whole language. And it's, yeah. Uh, I like it. It's very reliable for me, at least. No, I, I like that idea. That's a really good. Have you written up a, that system anywhere? Maybe that's uh, like a I, little zine you could. I thought I up. did. I was digging through like my notes for it because I know I have one draft of one thing where I did include it in the rule book, but I got to find it. But yeah, so I, I can. You should that do that too. and then like publish it. Ooh, that sounds like a that sounds like a perfect thing for like a zine quest yeah. kind of pro project Ooh. like 20 pages eight five and a half by eight and a half where you just talk about like names of places people and things and on you know, add in like you know exclamations forms of address and curses oh, um yeah. and like how you can kind of formulate things that all kind of sound the same for a particular language so far i've only got it for names though <laughs> well I mean, people yeah. would like a supplement like that too really Ooh. that's on that would be a, a fun little project. I, I think we like we like putting stuff like that in in games too because it's it's just like a simple, extremely effective way to world build. 
that only requires a couple words. You don't have to like be writing paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs about what your world is like in the history of the world. No, you can say a name and that tells you so much. Mm -hmm. So, so, so much. Also, one of the most disappointing parts of world building for me, uh, going back to what Greg was saying about the dwarf names with like the stone hill and you know, that kind of stuff. I generally don't like using like other language names in games because I'm like, one of my biggest pet peeves is like when you're like in The Witcher or something, uh, you know, Geralt says, you know, bon appetit. And it's like, French doesn't exist in that setting. Why is he speaking French? <laughs> uh, it's a huge like world building pet peeve of mine. I, I, I run into that with, with Star Trek stuff too, where oh, yeah. every so often something comes up in Star Trek and I'm like, there's no way in hell that slang term survived 400 years. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it just didn't. Yeah, I've got to have I, something better than that in the future. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, like when you look at like the names of these places, uh, you know, like uh, even places like, like, you know, real world places, like a lot of like Cornwall, stuff like that. And like you translate those names, you end up with the generic fantasy names of like, you know, Oh yeah, this is White Hill or Greycliff or uh, you know, <laughs> wow. Tower Town, and it's like, wait, the generic fantasy names are actually one hundred percent correct. Hang on, <laughs> that's actually what people are naming things. It's just then the language evolves, and they still keep using the old archaic name for the place. <laughs> yeah, or you get places that are named like Hell, Hell, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. or Santa Claus. And one other thing I love is like, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, I live in Roswell, Georgia, but there's Roswell, Arkansas with the aliens. There's also a Rome, Georgia and a Athens, Georgia, and, you know, all of this stuff. And I always like to joke that there weren't enough names in the name generator. So there's a bunch of duplicates. Like, Yeah. In, in yeah. Michigan, there are so many like, okay. Like Michigan has like a lot of weird naming conventions. They have a lot of like Greek stuff in there. Then there's like a lot of stuff that's named after the natural features of the place. Like, oh, here's, this is, the, this is the name of the river that this town is on. And then a lot of indigenous names. But I, I, the funniest part about the Greek named ones is that they're pronounced like so bizarrely. And it was always embarrassing for me to like say a word like, oh, you know, the guy from 300. What's, what's the guy from 300's name? Oh, uh, I should know this. Um, Leonidas. Leonidas. Oh, no, it's Leonidas. Leonidas. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> you got that one wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Wisconsin, it's New Berlin. Not not Berlin. Berlin? It's New Berlin. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, you know, Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, this I, I am glad that you picked this topic, Ben. This has been I, a lot no, of fun. Man. Yeah, I, I could go like a whole other thirty yeah. minutes talking about this one. <laughs> same, <laughs> same. But unfortunately, yeah. we don't have that time, Ben. Now is the time for you to tell us where we need to find you on the internet and other things that you want to plug. So I have been kind of low profile uh, the last few months working on side projects and like not tabletop stuff, just other stuff. Uh, but I do have an itch.io page. I do have uh, not only Lightning War, but also um, I did a, I took Tieflings, Dragonborn, and Lizardfolk and devolved them back to BXD&D in a really fun way. Uh, so I've got that on my itch.io page, which is, I think it's Games Inc., but I don't know the best way to, like, yeah. 
uh, games include a K. If you Google it, nope, it doesn't come up. Gamesinc.itch.io? Um, that sounds like it is probably me, yeah. If it's only got two or three things, then yes. If it is two or three things and one of them is Lightning War, yeah. But that's, that's where you can find what I've got. Yeah, I've been trying to get back into digital game development the last few months, uh, which is, you know, I kind of have one foot in both of those industries. So yeah, I've been doing a lot more digital stuff lately. So I don't have anything to show yet, but yeah, <laughs> thank you. Ooh, actually, hang on. I do also have um, on YouTube through the Georgia Game Developers Association. Uh, I don't know if it's up on YouTube yet, but at Siege 2022, I did a presentation on uh, class systems in games and designing classes for your game. So that I can send you a link for that too, if you want to plug that. You can find me on Twitter, at least for now. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe when this episode comes out, you can't. But you can also find me on other social medias too, at, at Joska, that's J-A-W-S-K-A. You can find some of my stuff at Wannabe Games um, on itch, wannabegames.itch.io, or Wannabe Games on DriveThruRPG. Uh, the Means of Magic digital release is out. I know, I, I'm so happy that it's done. <laughs> um, you can fight against the megacorps as they are destroying the planet by use of magic. It's a lot of fun um, and does not include any languages, although you are more than welcome to include them because the system is completely modular. You can add your own skills and your own spells and uh, fight fight the corpse or not. It's up to you. <laughs> you can find that on itch or drive through RPG. And uh, I'm Nerdburger Craig on Twitter and Mastodon because I'm preparing for the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, the website is nerdburgergames.com. The Patreon is patreon.com slash nerdburgercraig. We're getting all sorts of stuff made for Capers Cyber. Um, we're going to go ahead and call it Capers Cyberpunk. I was I was debating about using the full term, but yeah, let's do it. And uh, if you go to the website, nerdburgergames.com, you can pre-order uh, the fancy schmancy book of Code Warriors, um, which is in print production right now. Um, and you can also uh, pre-order um, from the second printing of Good Strong Hands, which will be in pre-production soon. Um, um, I'm just getting everything squared away for the first print run, and then I'm going to get the second print run going. I'm going to have two print runs that are going to overlap, potentially. So there you go. Uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, released under Creative Commons. And thank all of you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.